Amen. You may be seated as you find our passage today. It's a longer passage from Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 11, and we'll go through the end of the chapter. Pastor Brian helped us with the first, of, the first two of three parables that Jesus gives and with the same theme, and we come to what some have called uh, perhaps the most famous uh, parable, certainly, and maybe one of the most famous Bible passages uh, known, uh, the parable of the prodigal son. So Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through the end. Let me read it for us as you have it open in front of you. And this is Jesus speaking here. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property and reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you. And I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me even a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead. And is alive. He was lost and is found. And this is God's word. May he bless and add his understanding to the reading and now the preaching of his holy word. In her book, Unbroken, author Laura Hillenbrand tells the story 
uh, which many of you might know, of Olympic runner and World War II POW survivor Louis Zamperini. As a young teenager living in South California, Southern California, Louis was better known for causing trouble. Thieving was his hobby, especially if the loot was food. Louis was often in trouble at school for brawling and cared nothing about getting good grades. His poor Italian immigrant parents worried about him and tried to reel him in. Aware of his inadequacies, Louis tried to make up for it by scrubbing the kitchen floor, overhauling the engine of his family's sedan, and giving away the goods that he stole. Hillebrand writes this, Louis would give away anything, whether it was his or not. Louis's older brother Pete tried to reform him by getting Louis to run track, but even that seemed to fail. One day, Louis got angry about doing a chore and decided to run away. His parents pleaded with him to stay, but when he refused, they sent him off as lovingly as they knew how. Louis's mother made him a sandwich, and his father held out his hand to give him two dollars, a great deal of money for their family at the time. Louis took the gifts and left. He and his friends hitchhiked to Los Angeles and then jumped a train headed north. Running away was not the adventure that Louis hoped for. They barely escaped an oven-like boxcar in which they had been locked in. They were caught and forced at gunpoint to leave the train while it was still moving. They had to walk for several days and wound up sitting on the ground in a rail yard, filthy, bruised, sunburned, and wet, sharing a can of stolen beans. A train went past, and Louis could see passengers sitting comfortably inside. He recalled this, I saw beautiful white tablecloths and crystal on the tables and food and people laughing and enjoying themselves and eating, and I was sitting here shivering, eating a miserable can of beans. Hillebrand writes that Louis remembered the money in his father's hand, the fear in his mother's eyes, as she offered him a sandwich, and so he stood up and he headed home. Stories of homecoming like this are very striking to us, right? Uh, When we hear the story of someone who has wandered far and yet they come back home. And of course, they might resonate with us because we have people in our life that we long would come back home. Or perhaps it resonates with the story of your life. But it's interesting as we come to the story that we just read... Uh, the wayward son who comes home is is an important part of the story, but as they say, it's only half the story, right? And arguably, it might not even be the most important part of this story. But let me ask you this. What if today Jesus was calling you home? And that might mean that he's calling you home for the first time. It might mean that you've never been home with the Father. You've been alienated from him your whole life. But Christian... He might be calling you home this morning, as he does. Let's see, as we look at this parable, and and as we look at these two sons, we're going to ask just a few questions to move us through. There's no outline in your bulletin. Uh, We're going to let this parable sort of lead us through the message. Uh, But let me pose a couple questions as we go along, as we go along. And uh, kids, I was thinking of you um, uh, I, I saw a head come up over there. That's great. Uh, it, it, I know many of you take notes throughout the sermon, and sometimes you draw pictures. Let me suggest that as we go along and you listen, try drawing the moment when the son comes home to his father, um, and, and, and show your parents and show other people after the service. It might help us understand it better. So what's the first question? 
uh, if, if the point of the message is to come home, we need to ask, who needs to come home? Who needs to come home? And number one, the younger brother is who needs to come home. And, and this does make up half the story, verses 11 through 24. So let me move us through that narrative uh, to understand what Jesus is getting at and who he might be calling home. Well, the details of the story, you know, you could probably relate them. If we had time and I, and I asked you to write down in bullet points what happens in this story, even before I read it, you might have been able to come up with these key points, right? Uh, you know, number one, there was a man who had two sons. And so we already know there's going to be two halves to this story. But verse 12, the younger of the sons, it starts with him, comes to the father, and he says something shocking. He says, Father, Give me the share of the property that is coming to me. Now, that would be shocking in our day as well. I mean, imagine going to your father or your mother or your guardian and, and saying, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm in your will. Can I just have the money now? Uh, how would that conversation go over? Uh, it would be as if, and, and, and here in their day, it would be even more shocking. Here, this uh, patriarchal father, obviously of some means, I mean, they have hired servants, estates, farms, and this younger son who would be entitled to one-third of the property, the older son would be entitled to two-thirds of it, comes to him and demands, as it were, his one-third share. Now, just like in our day, how inheritances work, it's not like that money was just sort of set aside completely. It was still the money the father was in charge of and using to live. So it would be as if the son coming and saying, you're dead to me, father. I just want what's coming to me. And so we, Jesus readers and we, are, are, are equally shocked at what's happening here. But then what's more shocking is what the Father does. It just says, and he divided the property between them. This should shock us. It would shock us today, although my, we might be able to tell stories of, of, of kids who you know, run off or uh, you know, take the money and run, and it's, it's probably more common in our day. But in this day, this father would have been in well in his rights to, to rebuke the son and to actually say, now you have no share in this inheritance because you have dishonored me. And yet this father divides his property between the two sons. Now, not to get ahead of ourselves, but imagine the older son looking on, being like, wait, 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 this is messing with my investment plan. <laughs> I don't want the money now, right? But he divides the money between them. And it says, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, and he goes to a far country, and he squanders the money. Uh, he just spends it all. You know, we, we've heard uh, many stories of people who win the lottery, and then it just ruins their life, Right? Uh, having an influx of money is not very good for the human soul all at once if we, if we don't steward it. And here, uh, this young man goes and he squanders all of it. And here it says reckless living. Later, we see that uh, there's sexual sin involved, as well as just spending his money on his own needs. And so that's why we call this the parable of the prodigal son, this sort of recklessly sp spending his money in this faraway country. And then what happens? Verse 14, uh, there arose a severe famine in the country, and he began to be in need. Now, it's interesting. There, there's an article I saw called The Forgotten Famine, uh, and they did this study uh, looking at Christians from different countries and different backgrounds, and they said, okay, in bullet point, relate all the details of the prodigal son story. Nine out of ten Americans left out the famine. It just 
wasn't in our minds. It's not in our experience. Whereas uh, when this survey was taken, uh, Russian Christians who had just experienced a severe salmon, all, uh, salmon, famine, they wanted salmon, uh, they, all of them wrote down there was a severe salmon. That was a key point in the story. Uh, so you could see how our lenses sometimes color how we read things. And, and it's interesting, right, that a famine arises and then he realizes that he is in need not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but doesn't God often do that? Doesn't he often bring about providentially hard things to wake us up? And the son realizes he's in need. Uh, and so he goes and he hires himself out to one of the citizens. And what's the job? To feed pigs. Has anyone ever fed pigs in their life? Yes. So it's a good job. Um, it's an important job. But in, in this day and age, imagine the Jewish readers hearing this. So they're not just thinking, ah, oh, like that's, that's not a very fun job. They're thinking that's an unclean job, even spiritually speaking. And so this is certainly a Gentile land that the son has found himself in. And here this presumably Jewish man finds himself sort of at his lowest state. He has hired himself out to feed the pigs, making himself unclean day by day. But it gets worse. He's so hungry that he longs to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. Oof, can you imagine that? And speaking of different, different experience that we have sort of coloring our reading, many of us have maybe not even gone 24 hours without food in our life, and that's certainly a blessing, not something to be guilty about. Uh, but a different experience will we'll color this differently. I remember, I think 24 hours is about how far I've gone, um, so I've had a, just a tough life. Um, and I remember it was our youth ministry, uh, we, we had this event um, where we were supporting a, uh, uh, perhaps you've done something like this, we were supporting a children's orphanage program uh, in Sierra Leone and um, uh, Dominican Republic and a few other places. And we were called upon, invited to go without eating for 24 hours, and then we would come to this youth event and, and learn more about what it's like. Um, kind of having that hunger in your belly as you hear about these kids who experience it every day. So it was very helpful, uh, very eye-opening. At the end of that event, we did have pizza, <laughs> uh, so <laughs> uh, I don't even know if it was 24 hours, actually. Um, felt like it. Uh, and my friend Tony and I kind of looked at how little pizza there was, and we decided, let's just wait. Like, instead of having, like, two-thirds of one piece of pizza, let's wait. We were going to hang out that night. And as we did, we would walk down to Safeway, was our tradition, and uh, we picked up uh, the pre-made sandwiches from Safeway at the end of the day, mind you, and uh, brought them back. And uh, let me tell you, after 24 hours of not eating, um, there was no more delicious sandwich than that slightly stale, cheese-getting-hard sandwich, right? Uh, When that hunger is so real, it's amazing what will look good. And here this young man is longing to eat what the pigs are eating. And we could say here that he hits his rock bottom. We use that term because in verse 17 it says, he came to himself. Right? There was a famine. He's hired himself out. He's still trying to do it on his own. He's longing for the food of the pigs, and he wakes up. He says, what am I doing? He thinks back to his family. He thinks back to the hired workers who surely have enough food for the day. And so he starts to make a plan. He says, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say this to him. How many times have you been in trouble at some point in your life whether you stole something or lied about something, and uh, you're thinking about what you have to say to your parents 
uh, or your grandparents or, or whoever took care of you at the time, surely you thought about it ahead of time. <laughs> and, and you're thinking in your head, what am I going to say? What am I going to say uh, that's, that's, that's going to get me out of this uh, pickle? When I was, I was a horrible student in most of my school career, and uh, I would often not complete assignments, and then I would lie about it to my parents, which kids is a great idea, not a good idea. Um, and I would do it over and over again. And, and, and you know what my parents would say, right? They would say, it's not that you didn't do the assignment, it's that you did what to us? You lied to us. Uh, my parents would often say, if you fail a class but tried hard and you tell us the truth, you're not going to be in trouble. We're going to work on it. <laughs> um, but if you get an A in a class but lie to us, that's the problem. And I remember one Friday in particular is burned into my mind uh, because my dad was supposed to pick me up early to go to a movie premiere and uh, it was report card day. <laughs> I didn't even know what God's providence meant at the time, but uh, he brought these on the same day. And I was just rolling in my mind, what am I going to say when he comes and picks me up? Because I'm going to have that report card in my hand. And here the son is doing the same thing. Now, in his case, I think it's genuine. I don't think we're supposed to read the younger son as sort of like, how do I get out of this? Like, let me do some calculus. If you look at his words, they're, they're very much like the sinner's prayer that we looked at, the tax collector who says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Look at what he says. Here's what he's going to say to his dad. I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And so he arises, he goes to the father, And what do we see? When he's still far off, the father sees him and has compassion on him, and he runs out, embraces him, literally throws himself on him and kisses him. Again, there's some things that Jesus' hearers would be shocked by that we're not as shocked by. A father running out and doing this, depending on who our father was, we might not be shocked by this, but imagine for them this this revered patriarchal father, an estate owner, sort of lifting up his robes, girding them up, and just running out and throwing himself on the sun in tears. This would be unheard of. This would be embarrassing in some sense. This would be shocking. And this is what the father does, this compassionate father. And the son starts to speak, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And he can't even finish. And the father says, bring quickly well, I notice this, right? He, what was he going to say? I, hire me as one of your hired servants. But what does the father say? He calls to his servants and he says, bring the best robe. Bring a ring on his hand, sandals on his feet, and kill the fattened calf and let us celebrate. A, a robe and the ring symbolizing that he was part of the family once again, a son. A sandals being a sign of, um, of, uh, of wealth, of, 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 of being a part of the family again. And the fattened calf, this wasn't just sort of like Friday night dinner. Uh, this was a huge celebration, a costly celebration. And so the, so the father says, let us celebrate because my son was dead and is alive. He was lost and is now found. And so we see the younger brother needing to come home, and he does come home. But does the story end there? Look at verse 25. Now his older son was in the field. It sort of sets the stage for us. And the details here, although a long passage, are fewer. He, he sees the music and dancing. 
You could imagine maybe the look on his face as he's sort of peering over. He's been working out in the field, presumably, and he sees music and dancing. This isn't an everyday occurrence. He asks after what's going on. Presumably, he doesn't even know the younger son is back yet. And they say that he has been received back safe and sound, and they killed the fattened calf. And verse 28, but he was angry and refused to go in. And his father came out and entreated him, but he answers him harshly. What's, what's going on here? We need to remember the context of this parable, right? If you look back in chapter 15, verse 1 with me, This is what sets the stage for this parable. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And verse 3 says, so he told them this parable, uh, the parable of the lost sheep and then the lost coin and here of the lost son. And it's interesting these tax collectors and sinners of whom Jesus has been eating with all throughout the Gospel of Luke, the outcasts of society, the sort of obvious sinners. He's sharing a meal with them. And, and they're actually the ones who are hearing Jesus. Uh, it's interesting, if you look in verse four, uh, chapter 14 at the very end, Jesus says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then in the next breath, Luke says, These tax collectors and sinners drew near to hear him. They came to hear Jesus. What did the Pharisees and the scribes come to do? Did they come to hear? No, they actually came to grumble about the fact that he was eating and receiving tax collectors and sinners and IRS agents and those with a liberal political view and those arguing for CRT and other ideologies, and those homeless in our city who can make life difficult and, it's, and we're unsure what to do, and political leaders, perhaps on both sides of the aisle, or maybe even those wayward children are now eating with Jesus. They haven't even come home to us yet. That's who Jesus is eating with. And we could say that they're the younger brothers in the parable. The the younger brother, it's the story of him waking up and coming home, hearing, repenting, believing, and being found again. But secondly, then, who are the older brothers but the Pharisees and the tax collectors? Those who look at the story of the younger brother and grumble and are angry. And they don't celebrate. <laughs> they say, no, I've been, I've been slaving for you. I have been keeping my life holy. Look at those that you are welcoming in who so obviously have not lived for you. Why would you celebrate at them and not celebrate that I've been serving you this whole time? In some ways, this is really who the parable is about. As Jesus eats and grumbling happens, that's what sparks Jesus to say, I need to tell these parables. And not just the first parable, of lost being found, or the second, lost being found, I need to tell this third parable that gets right to the heart so that Jesus could look at even those Pharisees and entreat them, invite them. Would you join in the celebration? The kingdom is here. 
The lost are being found. I came to seek and save that which is lost. And you're actually squashing your own joy by not entering in to the joy of this salvation. Even the father in the story, right? We think of the father who sees the young son far off and then he runs out to him. But this is the story of two sons, and with the second son who won't come in, what does the father do? Again, he could come out to the older son and say, I command you to come in. Or he can come out to the older son and say, you are dishonoring me. I am pulling out all the stops in this celebration to have my eldest son not show up at this party. You're no longer my son. But what does he do? He comes out and entreats him, invites him. He longs that the older son would come in. Jesus longed that the Pharisees and tax collectors would come in, that they would come home, that they would find joy in seeing the Savior that all the scriptures have pointed to, that they would see that the good news of the gospel is a gospel of homecoming, uh, that Jesus came, and he, uh, he came having a people in mind given to him by the Father, a people who, like sheep, were, had gone astray, and he went as the lamb who was slain to gather those very sheep, to destroy the guilt of their sin that kept them far from the Father, uh, to destroy the power of sin over their lives, to, uh, so that the Father would run out to them and embrace them and welcome them home. And it was those who li- whose lives were most obviously broken who woke up, who came to themselves and said, I need this Savior. And so, friend, I would call you today, if you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good today, if, if you have come to yourself, that's because the Holy Spirit has opened your eyes to see this Savior. Would you come home to him? And that looks like repenting, turning away, as the wayward son does, and coming home to the Father, that you would be found in him, but Christian Let me call you this morning to come home as well. Even if you came home once and for all, praise God, once and for all, long ago, Jesus might be calling you today to come home. Perhaps you've wandered far. You know, you belong to him, but you've wandered. (laughs) Playing with sin, carelessly, would you come home? To him, he welcomes you home. Or perhaps you are near but far, like the older brother. You you never physically left. You've been dutifully reading your Bible and doing all the things, showing up every Sunday. But your heart has been far from him because of perhaps bitterness or perhaps pride or perhaps questioning, God, I, I serve you, but it... It's not dishing out. Would you come home if you're near but far? Or perhaps as a church we need to come home. And churches can wander too. We can have so many blind spots. And the question is, will we be the church of the younger brother? Welcoming. Will those doors be open to those whose lives are most obviously in need? Or will we be like the older brother, sort of gatekeepers? Yeah, you can come on one Sunday, but you better kind of get with the program. We'll give you three Sundays. 
No, and this church actually has a legacy of opening its doors, welcoming people in to hear the gospel, seeing lives transformed by the grace of God and his patient mercy. And we're called to do the same. Perhaps you're not far, but, or perhaps you haven't wandered, but you are wounded by other Christians who have sinned against you, by Christian leaders who have abused their power in your life or someone else's life. Would you be found by him? Would you come home? As they say, would you be safe and sound? The Greek is healthy. Would you come home and find health in his arms? Or perhaps for you, you haven't been thinking of yourself much in the sermon because you just think of your wayward child when you hear this parable and you, and you put their face right on this parable and you say, this parable's great, but it has a happy ending. <laughs> the wayward child comes home and mine hasn't. Know that God sees you. <laughs> He's not surprised by the trial that you're facing. He's not deaf to your prayers and your prayers and your prayers. Would you be like the persistent widow that we saw who prays persistently, unabashedly, that your child would come home. Perhaps this parable will give you some words that God would help them come to their senses, that God might even use difficulty in their life to wake them up, that they would come home to him ultimately, and of course, to you and to your family. Or perhaps you're not far, but your heart has grown cold. The Bible reading plan you started in January has already felt stale. You come every Sunday, but that as we hear in Revelation, that first love that you once had has just grown cold. What would it look like to come home? Look at the celebration and the joy that's happening in this passage. And, and we see in the other parables that it's happening in heaven when a sinner comes home. Obviously for the first time, but I, I would say even for Christians who come back home, who come back uh, to the ancient past, who come back to their loving Father, there is joy and celebration in heaven and certainly within the church. And don't you love Psalm 51 that we get to pray, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Not just, it would be enough if we could just pray, God, would you forgive me my sin? And he sort of legally said, I have forgiven your sin. That would be enough to overwhelm us, but it goes further. God, restore to me the joy of my salvation. I pray that you would have the joy of your salvation restored. Would you come home? Let me read one more story. Uh, This comes from a podcast called This American Life. And uh, as a caveat, I'm not speaking to the politics of of the country of Colombia. So, you know, don't read it that way. Uh, But focusing on on the personal elements here. This American Life ran a segment about a marketing executive from Colombia named Jose Miguel Sokoloff. The government of Colombia hired Jose to run an ad campaign They would convince leftist guerrilla rebels to demobilize and reenter society. In 2010, Jose and his team ran a campaign called Operation Christmas, but they saved their most effective campaign for last. After three Christmas ad campaigns due to political changes, Jose and his team knew that they had to try something new. In 2012, the two warring sides began peace talks that seemed to be very promising. And so the question was no longer... Is this a winnable war? But since the war is probably going to end, 
Will my community back home take me in again? Will my family still accept me? And as a side note, isn't that often the question, the wayward child? That's the deep question that they're asking. And that's when they dropped probably their biggest emotional bomb, a campaign they called simply Mother's Voices. They found 37 mothers of guerrilla fighters who were willing to give them pictures of those fighters as children. Jose said, and it was important that they give us pictures of the kids when they were very small, because we did this in order to protect them, uh, but we needed to make sure that only the person in the picture would be able to recognize himself. And the message simply was this, quote, Before you were a gorilla, you were my child. Come back home. I'm waiting for you. They printed up thousands of these posters and hung them in towns that the gorillas moved through, and they nailed them up on trees as well. With a simple, moving focus, the mother's voices prove that you don't have to do something huge to win someone over. In this case, you just need a mom and her love for her wayward child. How much more? When your loving father calls you home, invites you home, runs out unabashedly to greet you on the road, friend, Christian, come home to him this morning. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, that it speaks to our very lives and our hearts. I pray that your word would not come back void this morning, but that many would come home to you to be found safe and sound in your arms. In Christ we pray, amen.